Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Chadwick P. Smith, MD, about disaster and mass casualty response strategies in the wake of the Orlando shooting. Dr. Smith is the Program Director for Surgical Critical Care, the Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit, and the Vice Chair of the Department of Surgery at Orlando Regional Medical Center in Orlando, Florida. Thank you for being with us today, Chad. Sure. Thank you for having me. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures for us? I do not. Would you start by explaining your disastrous preparedness plan and how an institution goes about developing such a plan? So we have a mass casualty incident plan that has been developed by our corporate emergency repair preparedness department and then vetted throughout the hospital or throughout the organization, I should say. And it's kind of developed in conjunction with EMS throughout Central Florida. And we drill, you know, mass casualty drills annually with other hospitals, other our sister hospitals, other other hospitals of different organizations throughout the Central Florida area, as well as with fire departments, as emergency medical services, et cetera. And specific to our hospital, we have several different levels of mass casualty incident. A through C, assuming 10 to 50 victims, 50 to 100 victims, and then a catastrophic event after that. The entire country was horrified by this event, but one of the striking things that speaks to the success of your mass disaster preparedness is that none of the patients who were definitively treated at Orlando Regional Medical Center died. What strategies did you have that were most successful, and what did you learn from this disaster? Well, I think part of the reason for that is is luck. The incident happened literally two to three blocks away, and so the patients were able to be brought here very quickly and triaged very quickly. Fortunately, I was able to talk to almost all of my partners Everybody that was in town that night was able to come in, as well as the hospital staff that was able to be called in immediately and get patients taken care of in a a quick fashion. We went, we usually have about, we usually have two operating rooms going in the middle of the night or staffed for that, and we were able to get up to six operating rooms within about 45 minutes to an hour. And so patients were able to be triaged quickly and then taken to the operating room based on their level of triage very quickly. Did you learn any lessons from this disaster response that will help you, God forbid, there should be another one? I think some of the difficulties with dealing with the patient's families, I mean, there were obviously, you know, hundreds of people looking for their loved ones and dealing with the FBI as well as dealing with the families, trying to notify them as soon as we could. You know, we could probably improve on how we do that. As far as patient care issues, I really can't thank our team enough because no one, you know, with regards to getting supplies in, you know, at one point we had kind of a lull between the first wave of victims, about an hour of relative calm, and then another wave of victims and realized that we had basically gone through every central line, chest tube, et cetera, in the emergency department and hospital incident command was set up. I spoke with them and said, we need more supplies. And basically they were there delivered from our sister hospital across the street and central supply within minutes. So I think all of the resources were utilized very well. 
You mentioned at the beginning that you have three levels of disasters, A, B, and C, disaster response, depending on numbers. I would imagine that initially you didn't know how many you were going to get. So how did you go about activating your system? So initially, a mass casualty incident is paged out to you know, the hospital paging system via the operator. And we have an administrator on call that's not necessarily in-house, and they're responsible for starting the mass casualty incident. And We have a hospital incident command that is set up that is modeled after the Department of Homeland Security's National Incident Command System. And every person on that incident command board, if you will, has a specific role. And then that kind of trickles down department to department throughout the hospital. And initially, you know, whether it was an A or B or C, everything gets activated for each initial plan. So we knew that there were initially the reports were 20 plus victims. We ended up getting 44 patients that would I guess, in a retrospect, classify as an A incident, but it was quite rapid. But the initial response was the same regardless? The initial response is the same, yes. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the multi-professional team in the disaster response? So yeah, we have we have obviously an incident commander. We have media relations. We have uh, you know a supply person, you know nursing administration, and everyone has their task. Be it from organizing housekeeping to clean up the emergency department or the trauma bays, so that we can get new patients in, to you know having supplies brought in from other hospitals, to getting the patients that are in the hospital that need to be discharged to make new beds for the newly injured. Kind of shifting the current. ICU patients out to the step-down units and the people that are on the floor getting them discharged or moved to, you know, a staging area in preparation for discharge just to make more beds. So it, it is very multidisciplinary in nature to kind of get all hands on deck and do everything that needs to be done. How did you manage, I assume you had effective communication between the emergency department and the critical care units. How did you manage that? Yeah, so some of that was routed through Incident Command. We have radios that I can talk to Incident Command when I immediately also telephone or cell phone if needed. So communication is obviously an important part of the It's very important. Yeah. An event like this, aside from the massive medical and surgical responses that are needed, also carries with it huge emotional stress. You alluded a little bit to dealing with the families and then, of course, the law enforcement people and I'm sure the press and probably the staff have their own emotional responses to such a horrible event. Can you talk a little bit about that and how can the hospital help the staff, I mean, initially... I'm sure they all did what they had to do, but the fallout from that can probably be rather substantial. How did you deal with that? So initially, within 24 hours of of deactivation of the incident command, we have a mandatory debriefing from kind of a logistical aspect. But then we also set up round-the-clock kind of group discussion sessions that were set up with human resources. So every two hours they were scheduled. They lasted between 30 to 40 minutes apiece, just depending on how how long the group wanted to talk. We have a very robust employee assistance program that is providing group counseling as well as individual counseling should any team member feel that they need it. And, you know, the city of Orlando and the community itself has set up counseling for the victims, the victims' families. So that certainly is an ongoing thing. Initially, during the event, there's not anything really processed mentally as far as that is concerned, but in the weeks to follow, certainly it's a big issue that needs addressing, and and I believe that we've addressed it pretty well. Can you talk about your personal reactions to this event and what you have learned from it? 
you know, I, I'll be honest. The night that I was I was on call for trauma that night, and I called all my partners in, and I can remember walking around the emergency department and the trauma bay, you know, in a, inside panicking right. on, on the inside. People I've said people have told me that I appeared calm, but that's not how I felt. Mm-hmm. But then it's been very it's been hard on. You know, all of us, my children saw it on the news. They're very young and being away from them, uh, you know, it's after after the first day, you know, we're certainly busy. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, you know, over the past two to three weeks since that time. And after three to four days, it starts to sink in the emotions of what has happened and just continuing to go through the work and begin to deal with that has been somewhat trying. But I think we're all you know, we've gotten together and talked, you know, about the emotional side of it with each other. We had a, a debriefing event with all of our surgical residents who were a tremendous help in the event where we just kind of sat around for two hours during our usual grand rounds and M&M time and, and everybody just kind of shared. And I think that was very helpful as well. So kind of being together for each other has really helped. I think your comments about appearing calm while inside you felt anything but is an important point for critical care people. I think that the captain of the ship has to be calm and in control and sets the tone for the entire environment. And I commend you on your at least ability to look calm because that <laughs> that carries a tremendous message to the rest of your team. Sure. Uh, well, I think we're all human and we all have stressors. And, you know, especially in a situation like that, you have an option to keep going or you have an option to, you know, sit in the corner and cry. And if you do that, people are going to die. Yeah, well, you then you don't really have that option, but some people do it anyway. Do you have any thoughts or recommendations for other emergency departments and critical care units who are evaluating their disaster preparedness plan? Everybody has one, but are there things that we should all be thinking about that maybe we kind of hadn't before? Well, I would say everybody is required to drill for this. I would say you know, and I've probably been guilty of it in the past, halfway being committed to it and thinking, oh, this will never happen here. I would urge everyone to realize it can happen anywhere. It is of utmost importance. It can never truly prepare you for what is, you know, may happen, but it is vital to get the groundwork. I've gotten lots of letters from across the country and support from people, and I would say that one person who wrote to me had been involved in an incident in Los Angeles many years ago, but said that our drilling for these events set the stage. So we knew where to start. We knew where to stand and wait for, if you will, to use an uh, analogy of theater. We knew where our starting positions would be, and then that helped us to get through what we hadn't prepared for, if you will. Right. The need for additional equipment and stuff that you discovered after the first wave, was that something that you had anticipated or had not? Well, I don't know that I had anticipated that, but somebody had because we have these carts set up. You know, patients are triages, red, yellow, green, and black. You know, the green patients would go to the cafeteria or a staging area. The Mm -hmm. yellows in the emergency department and the reds I tried to keep in the trauma bay and send to the operating room. And the black, you know, obviously would go to the morgue. But we have carts that are red, green, and yellow carts that have the red cart has chest tubes on it and the the green cart just has some bandages on it and when i said we need more stuff 
those carts were rolled in within about five minutes, and I'm like, I'm glad that somebody has thought about these carts. Right, and the ability to get it from your sister hospital across the street, there must have been some level of coordination and planning for that so that Absolutely. I guess the message of, from that is each hospital has to look within their own system, and you said early on you worked with other hospitals within your system. So it's not just an individual institution, but it's a system-wide planning and drilling that's important. Yes. I mean, to be able to coordinate, uh, there were nurses that came from the children's hospital across the street to work in the emergency department that night. There were people called in that were not on call that were, you know, on disaster call lists, if Mm -hmm. you will, and to be able to surge and flex up capability. Well, once again, I am impressed with the success of your efforts and the functioning of your team, and I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? You know, I would just like to say that it is very important, as I said earlier, to drill and do not take uh, for granted. I will say that we've had, since the incident, we've had 20 patients being injured from gun violence since that time um, over the past couple of weeks. So it is a problem. I don't know the solution to the problem, but I believe that we should be able to study it, and hopefully that will, uh, that will change in the future where we're able to approach this epidemiologically. I hope so. Well, thank you again for talking with us. Thank you, Dr. Parker. We have been speaking today with Dr. Chadwick P. Smith from Orlando, Florida, about disaster and mass casualty response strategies. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash eyecriticalcare for more information. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former President of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.